This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Music. It's the soundtrack of our lives. But what types speak to you is as unique as your DNA, thanks in part to an explosion in the diversity of styles over the last century. On this week's show, we're going to dig into the evolution of modern music and find out how science and technology have opened the floodgates to new and fascinating styles. We'll also learn how changes in the music we listen to is a true indicator of societal change. And in our SAS class, we'll find out that the best way to stay in shape may be to follow your own evolved preferences instead of someone else's playlist. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to treat you to an awesome exploration of modern music and how it affects not just your ears, but your life. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. How many styles of music do you believe exist today? A dozen? 50? 100? Well, according to the musical website Every Noise at Once, there are just over 2,500. 2,503 to be exact. You may not have heard of most of these genres, such as Christian deathcore, hauntology, Icelandic jazz, Makassa, or the enigmatic-sounding C86. But each one has its own sound and raison d'être. When you think about it, it's incredible that this world could be filled with such a variety of music. After all, every single song is based on octaves of only 12 notes. And while most people can hear around 10 octaves, meaning about 120 notes in total, most music relies on only about three, which is within the normal human vocal range. Unless you happen to be Mariah Carey or Ariana Grande. 36 notes, thousands of genres, millions of songs. It gets even more awesome than that. Most of that explosion in variety has come in the last 100 years. If you wonder why, it really comes down to two factors, societal evolution and technology. A recent analysis of modern music over the last century has revealed that the idea of the classical composer has pretty much been forgotten. In its place, a more diverse perspective exists that includes all races, creeds, and even those who create music we love to hate. Think Muzak. It's a genre and it is a booming business, from elevators to retail stores to restaurants. Some genres, like blues, pop, punk rock, and rap, started off small and then grew to become worldwide phenomena. The rest of those 2,500 styles continue to be regional without any care for the rest of the world. As for technology, the most important advancement in making music available to people has been the development of media upon which we can play music. Before the phonograph was invented in the late 1800s, the only way to hear music was live. But by 1890, the so-called phonograph parlors were in every major city in America, and for a mere nickel, you could hear previously recorded music 
With every generation came a new way to hear music culminating in today's live streaming technology, which can bring an individual's performance at home to the rest of the world. Technology has also been a major factor in music's evolution. Much of the compositions you hear today would not be possible without one or more advances made in audio production. As for how the technology has done this, there are far too many moments to cover in one show. In fact, even a decade of programs cannot fully encompass how modern music has developed. Fortunately, I have the one person who has spent the last two and a half decades documenting how music has evolved joining me right now. He's Alan Cross, and he is the host of The Ongoing History of New Music, a show that has itself transformed over the years thanks to technology. I remember listening to him when I was a university student, and now I'm honored to talk with him today. It's hard to think of where to start when it comes to the importance of technology in new music. What was it for you that signified that moment in history when music had changed forever? I think, and it all depends on your age, because if you are in your 70s, you probably remember Elvis. If you're in your 60s, you probably remember seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 1964. If you're a little younger than that, maybe you remember being exposed to punk rock for the first time. Or in the 80s, maybe it was, hey, synthesizer bands. Uh, this is really, really cool. In the 90s, could have been grunge. And in the 2000s, I guess it would be an exposure to technology because in the 2000s, we get into the internet, we get into file sharing, we get into streaming. And that was a major, major game changer for lots and lots and lots of people of a certain age. Has there ever been an advancement that you've seen that has evolved to a point no one thought could ever be reached? I would say, okay, again, we can go by decade. The introduction of the electric guitar and the amplifier in the 1950s, I mean, that was, that was amazing. The introduction of the various effects pedals and bigger amplifiers that allowed guitars to be loud and fuzzy and distorted and powerful. You're right. You're right about talking about synthesizers because that synthesizers were, synthesizers were important because they allowed people to create sounds that the human ear had never heard before. In fact, they created sounds that the human ear hadn't even been able to comprehend before. I think when it comes to, there's two things. There's the technology used to make music and then the technology to listen to music. And if we're going to be used to talk about the latter, it would have to be the introduction of the internet and the intersection of the internet and music, starting with MP3s and file sharing and legal download and all the rest of it. That was such a game changer when it came to consumption of music, interaction with music, music discovery, and the marketing and sales and making of music. It basically destroyed the traditional music industry in a, in a matter of a couple of years. That's, you know, if, if making music, I say the introduction of the electric guitar. Uh, listening to music, the advent of the internet and MP3s and file sharing. We've gone from a number of different genres, a handful at most, to 2,503. Now, I love the idea that we are increasing our diversity. How has technology played into how we've diversified as opposed to, say, how we just make and share music? That's an interesting question because technology has facilitated the expansion of music. If we look at 1951, 1952 is the rock and roll big bang 
you know, everything basically starting with guitars, bass and drums, maybe saxophone, maybe piano. And then we look at how technology has influenced that bigger amplifiers, um, effects pedals, samplers, sequencers, synthesizers, four track, eight track, 16 track, 32 track, unlimited track recording, analog recording to digital recording. All these things build upon each other to create different sounds and different opportunities to explore these sounds. See, the, the human brain likes to categorize things. We need to, we need to put order out of chaos. So we like to put things into nice, neat little piles. But, you know, it used to be that we had rock, country, pop, jazz, classical, and maybe, uh, maybe funk or, or R&B. Mm-hmm. Well, each one of those things, each one of those genres has stratified and separated and segmented into you know, a million different things. This, this, it's like a chain reaction. It's like a nuclear chain reaction. And technology has, has facilitated a lot of that. Let's look at uh, what happened with funk and, and R&B. That eventually became rapid hip-hop in the late 1970s. And that was facilitated by things like turntables and mixers, and later by samplers. So we would not have rapid hip-hop if it were not for the use of new tools, tools that were not traditionally used for making music. I remember there was this interview with Jeff Martin, the lead singer of the Tea Party, where he said, if you give me a board of 48 tracks, I'm going to use all those tracks. But when you listen to that music, it's just so cohesive and smooth. The creativity that people have when making music just seems to be helped by technology. I, I talked to Amy Lee of Evanescence once. We were listening to, to an album, and I asked her, how many tracks, how many layers are in the song? She says, 256. So she used all the available tracks, I guess, on a Pro Tools rig and just kept layering and layering and layering. And, you know, after a while, it becomes too much. You can't hear a lot of it, but it all comes in the mixing and the mastering. So, yeah, uh, if you look at music between, let's say, 1967 and 1972, there was a huge technological leap as we went from four track to eight track to 16 track. And music got more complicated in the early 1970s because it could because there were more tracks available, because you could play with different sounds and different mixes and, and all kinds of different things. So, uh, you know, the Beatles, when they did Sgt. Pepper, they were dealing with four tracks. When they did uh, the Let It Be album, they were dealing with eight tracks, finally. But then if you get to 1972, it's, it's a different animal. And musicians are always going to push the envelope when it comes to available technology. So, well, you know, I got more tracks, I've got more outboard gear, I've got more special effects, I've got more doodads that do this. So, uh, again, it's, it's music can get more complicated because it can. That doesn't mean that it should, because sometimes there's beauty and simplicity. But give a, a, somebody a studio with unlimited time and money, and uh, they will go to town using every bit of technology that's available to them. You were at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Did you happen to see anything that will take us towards an unknown but awesome step in music's evolution? Not really, because everything seemed to be focused on headphones and speakers and Bluetooth speakers and a few other things like that. I didn't see anything truly revolutionary. However, I did talk to some people and they said that, look, if you want to see what's coming next in music, what's coming after streaming, uh, look at the tech industry. And what's the tech industry doing now? It's says, well, it's, it's VR, it's artificial intelligence, it's augmented reality. Exactly. That is going to be the future of music. 
well, okay, fine. How is that going to manifest itself in a way that it can eclipse streaming? And the person said, don't know, but that's what's going to happen. And usually there is some kind of hugely disruptive thing in the music industry every 10 years or so. So the biggest thing now is streaming. In fact, if we look at uh, some uh, annual results from Sony, for example, uh, they just reported that more than half of their $3.9 billion in revenue came from streaming. And you know, five years ago, I mean, what? I mean, that's where all your money's coming from? Meanwhile, physical sales, like CDs and so on, they're down 22%. Um, all the labels would rather that physical music with the perhaps the exception of vinyl, disappear because it would save them in manufacturing and transportation and warehousing and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so right now we are coming towards the end of the period of disruption caused by streaming. It is going to take another 10 years before we find out what comes next. And like this guy says, it's probably going to be something to do with artificial intelligence. I don't know what that means. But somebody's working on it right now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Music has been regarded as a reflection of society and culture. However, can it work in the opposite direction? Can music have an influence on the evolution of society? There have been a few examples in which certain musicians and or musical events have been called the spark for a change in the way we see and act in the world. Here are just a few that you might have heard of over the years. The Beatles caused the collapse of the Soviet Union by enticing youth to a different type of life. The album Sun City shone a light on apartheid in South Africa, leading to its demise. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On helped to end the Vietnam War. Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi was the spark needed by environmentalists. U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday helped to end the war in Northern Ireland. Public Enemies Fight the Power spoke to those affected by police oppression, leading to the now infamous L.A. riots of 1992. And then there's John Lennon's Imagine, which some have called the first world anthem. As you might expect, these claims are hotly debated and there may never be a satisfactory conclusion. However, the theory that music might be more than just a passive part of our lives cannot be ruled out. Over the last 30 years, Alan Cross has been looking at the influence of music on society and has given significant attention to a variety of different formats. Close your eyes and just listen to the names of the genres and you'll see how society has changed due to the dawn of these types. Punk music, rap, grunge, goth, electronica, and Weezer.
We know there have been several musicians who have been theorized as having changed society in a positive way. There have been others who have been criticized for being a negative influence on society. Uh, Elvis was a threat to the puritanical ways. Madonna was enabling sexual promiscuity. Ozzy Osbourne was trying to convince people to commit suicide. And Marilyn Manson was pretty much bad for everything. I, <laughs> I still love the guy. You've covered a few rebels over the years. Are they as bad as they seem, or is it just a reaction from those who fear evolution? It's a couple of things. First of all, it is reaction from those who fear change, who fear that the status, their, their status quo is being upset. And the other part is marketing, because you want to be able to cut through the noise. So these artists, Madonna especially, have figured out a way to pull society's chain. And she was very, very bold about it and very successful with it. There are going to be some people who will say, well, you know, we wouldn't have had the Columbine massacre if it hadn't been for Marilyn Manson. These kids were listening to Marilyn Manson, and as a result, that set them off. Well, it's an easy, cheap scapegoat for that sort of thing. Same thing with Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne, people who apparently have done terrible things to themselves and others after listening to this music. Listen, these people were already on the bubble when it came to doing something weird and anything could have triggered them. It just happens to be music. And because it's a type of music that tends to be anti-authoritarian, very rebellious, very, you know, anti-establishment, well, we're going to point the finger at that. And those are the songs, those are the albums, those are the artists that that need to be blamed and expunged from society. My parents tell me that uh, when the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan in 1964, I was 18 months old at the time. And my father turned off the TV because he didn't want his 18-year-old son, 18-month-old son to be exposed to such filth. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And and the Beatles back then, you know, they, you know, along with Elvis, they were they were public enemy number one. They were they were they were godless. They were uh, these 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 people who were going to completely upset the delicate balance of society and its norms and its folkways and mores and morals. Uh, and you're always going to have that. I mean, we can go back to the 1990s when, when hip hop and rap really came in with gangster rap. Oh, that was going to be the death of everything. And uh, then we go to, you know, Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera at the end of the nineties and beginning of the two thousands. And Oh, you know, that young, cheap sexuality, that's going to be the death of order in the, in, in the Western world and so on and so on. So, if you look back, every generation believes that the generation after it is about to do something with their art that will destroy everything that older generation holds true. There was a time when doing dancing the waltz was seen to be an evil, horrible thing. Because previous to that, you had these long what you know, line dances for lack of a better term, but with the waltz you were actually touching and you were touching close. Mm, that's not a that's not a good thing. If we go back to the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, and the rise of things like the Charleston with women wearing skirts that were above their knee. Oh my god, they are dancing with skirts above their that is gonna be the end of everything. Um, you know, blues music was considered to be rough and raw and primitive and awful. Uh, rock and roll comes along, same kind of thing, and it, it's a continuing, it's a continuing battle between the generations. The more things change, the more they stay the same. 
Maybe we should just be welcoming an increase in diversity so that we can get a better perspective for cultural change. A few months back, I had a chance to be at a performance at the Grand Old Opry in Nashville. Now, as a Marilyn Manson fan, you probably imagine I'm not much of a country fan, but it was such an experience. I, I simply will not forget it. No, I know what you mean. I was at a, at a show uh, last year at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. I am not a country fan. There was nothing that you could do to make me into a country fan. However, the environment in which you see some kind of music will at least give you an appreciation of what other people see in that particular type of music. I admire country fans. They are loyal, they are hardcore, and they are very, very nice. It's not my kind of music, but I certainly understand the nature and the attraction of the community. So good for you. Um, I would much rather be in some scuzzy bar someplace seeing a band scream their, their lungs out. That makes me, I feel more at home there. Uh, but I, imagine, I would imagine somebody that went to the Grand Old Opry or the Ryman Auditorium in that same bar would feel very, very, very out of place. That's one of the things about music that I love. People will react to the environment and stay within that culture regardless of where they might be coming from on a normal day. Yes. I was at a Metallica show a couple of weeks ago, and I got to see how the Metallica machine takes care of its fans. And again, some scary looking dudes and women with the clothing and the bandanas and the spikes and, you know, but they were because they were respected by the band they went to see and they were respected by the members of their community. They showed respect to everybody else. And it was a really intense concert experience, but it was a really civil concert experience. And I've noticed that with, a lot of different genres. For example, if you are a newbie and you go to an EDM festival and you let everybody know that you're, you're new, they'll want to show you around. They'll want to break you in. They'll want to help you understand what's happening because you took the time and spent the money to try and investigate and appreciate their community. Same thing with a lot of punk rock kids. If you get in there and, and, and without trying too hard, show people that actually, I think this is for me. I think this is what I want to do. You'll find somebody that will take, take you under their wing. I think it's such a great escape to be able to experience music from different styles, even though it's not maybe your favorite. Maybe that's a way we can influence people to increase their diversity overall and just simply gain an appreciation for other cultures. Which is why, over time, I've learned to appreciate other people's musical tastes. I used to be such a terrible music snob. If they didn't like my music, well, they weren't worth my time. And I would look at their music and go, oh, that's awful. You people are terrible. You don't know how to listen. You don't really like music. You don't really understand music. I mean, look at your musical tastes. Now, though, I realize, look, be accepting of everything and enjoy what you want. Just let everybody do their own thing and if you open your mind, you may find certain things that appeal to you. You might actually learn from people and their musical tastes, even though you thought you hated it. So keep your mind open. You know, uh, respect all music, listen to what you want. It's SAS class time. And today, we're going to reveal how your personal taste in music may be best for your health. 
There's quite a bit of research that shows music can help you with a variety of mental tasks, such as learning and memorizing. I used to do it when I would study for exams. I still have the final countdown from Europe playing in my ears every time I do calculus. But for many people, music is almost instantly equated with exercise. Whether we're running alone with our smartphone or sweating it out in a group aerobics class, music is always present. Clinical studies have shown that having music helps us to stay focused. However, when it comes to the type of music we should choose, there is no real consensus. Our guest teacher today may have the reason behind science's inability to determine whether pop, rock, country, classical, or death metal will give you that added advantage during your workout. Her name is Dr. Jasmine Hutchinson, and she is an associate professor of exercise science and sports studies and is the director for sport and exercise psychology at Springfield College in Massachusetts. How does music help us when it comes to exercise? Music naturally makes us want to move. We kind of sync to a beat. Um, you know, this is a pretty innate human characteristic to want to move to a beat. And when we do that, we call that an entrainment effect, whereby we synchronize our movements to the beat of the music. And this helps us regulate and, and also maintain our pace by following an external stimulus. Um, and, and, and in that regard, it makes their movements more efficient. Um, another way that music helps is that generally if people pick the right kind of music, it tends to make you feel good. Um, some music can make you feel sad, but if you, um, if you pick the right kind of music, it tends to um, um, lead to what we call improved affective states, which just generally means that you know, we experience that as pleasurable. And so for some people, exercise is not a pleasurable thing, um, particularly when people are new to exercise um, or when people are out of shape, obesity, and, and things like that. Um, exercise is, is seen as kind of a chore and, and something to be avoided. So if you compare it with something that makes you feel good, um, the idea is that you know, it, it makes the exercise at least more tolerable if, if, if not delightful. It makes me think a little bit about the idea of loudness. And you did a study looking at that back in 2014. Right. We stereotypically talk about the idea that, you know, the louder the music, you're going to have a better exercise performance. Is that really true? To an extent, I guess, will be my answer, yeah. So um, another one of the reasons why music's beneficial for exercise is it has a stimulating effect. And any stimulus, you know, the greater the intensity of a stimulus, the greater the effect. So loud music tends to be more stimulating than quiet music. But yeah, absolutely, there's a ceiling effect. And, and what we found out in that particular study, we put people through a progressive exercise, um, which started at low intensity and um, increased uh, to, to capacity. So it was a VO2 peak test. And um, what we found there was that as the music, uh, um, as the exercise intensity went up, people had free choice to change the volume and they tended to match that by increasing the volume. But then when they got right to the point of what we call ventilatory threshold, which to most people would be the point at which you get kind of breathless, it's hard to maintain a conversation and it's associated with really a higher intensity exercise. We found that there were no further increases in volume and that really that, that sort of the effects kind of tapped out there, uh, which you might imagine because obviously during very, very high intensity exercise, no amount of music is really going to help when it's, when it's that difficult. So yeah, so at low to moderate intensity, the louder the better. Um, but then yeah, once you hit that sort of um, 
ventilatory threshold, louder isn't better. In fact, louder can actually be kind of annoying at that point. You just want to shut it off. <laughs> Let's just talk a bit about playlists. We have yeah. all sorts of apps and, and even machines now that are making up lists of songs that are apparently going to help you with your routine. Right. Mm, but again, you wrote a paper last year in which you suggest, well, maybe that's not the best option. So, so when it comes to choosing music for exercise, who, who is making the best choice? That's actually a, a really interesting question, yeah. So in that particular paper, we use self-selected music, and um, there's definitely a personal element to music, you know, sort of like, I think the phrase is like, one man's music is another man's noise, or something like that. I, I think I just butchered that. But, but essentially, you know, what's enjoyable to you may not be so to me, and so that really falls into genre. And certainly, I know a number of the apps out there can take into account your genre preference, and, you know, you can actually give feedback, like, hey, I liked this one, I didn't, and they get smarter. So they can certainly take a stab at that, but I think most of them, to the best of my knowledge, are tempo-based. So if you're a person who has difficulty regulating your tempo, let's say you... um you know, you, you start out too hard or too fast and you get out of breath. Um, certainly, you know, finding a playlist that will help you regulate tempo can be handy. So they certainly have some value. But, yeah, what they really can't get at is that personal connection. So oftentimes music, particular songs can evoke a really powerful memory. You know, like, oh, this is my song, like my high school song or whatever it may <laughs> <Yes>. be. And, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and um, an algorithm can't tell that. So similarly with lyrics, you know, some people may really tune into the lyrics of a song and really feel empowered. And again, an algorithm's not really going to always get that right. So certainly they're helpful, uh, particularly when you're trying to modify tempo or stick to a tempo. Um, but yeah, the personal factor really, what really makes music powerful and touch people um, and really tap into that emotional effect tends to be your personal preferences and your personal connections. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has been music to your ears. Yeah, that was too easy. I know. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. Thanks to you, we've been nominated for a Canadian Podcast Award in Science and Medicine series. We'll put the link in the show notes. If you are a podcaster, please vote for us. If you have any questions or want to make a comment on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. For comments longer than 280 characters, including ideas for the show, you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information on what you heard today and find links to all of our guests. The Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. Enjoy whatever music you love. And as always, be sure to show them some sass. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.